Well, if you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Romans 3. You may be aware that on the main page of the website, we do um, have some handouts that are there for you to print out, and it is the text of Romans 3.19 through the end of chapter 8 that is meant for you to mark up. Sometimes we don't like to mark in our Bibles, and that's completely fine. But this gives us an opportunity to be interactive with the text, and I think that's highly important that we do that. We are picking up from where we were two weeks ago. We took last week, and we dealt with the subject of resurrection and what if it had never happened, and we want to come back to this about what it is to live the Christ life. We started with Romans 5.1, the idea that we now have peace with God. And the reason why we do is because we've been justified by faith and Jesus Christ has made this possible. And so that immediately wants to put us in a position where we need to understand exactly what justification entails and exactly what has happened to us to bring us to a point where we have no more friction or infighting with God. We are no longer enemies of God. We are now on the same plane with him, and he has brought us there. And so what we're trying to do is work through the situation and figure out how we've done that, um, or how that's been done for us, let me say that more properly. So if you would look at Romans chapter 3, let's read verses 19 through 24. For the next two weeks, this week and next week, we are going to be at a snail's pace but that's intentional for the fact of we've got a lot of huge vocabulary words here that we need to deal with. So we're going to do a little review and then we're going to move forward. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, real quick, I want to back up here just a little bit and do some short review. And there are three main words that we've seen in verses 20 and 22 in particular, the ideas of what it is to be righteous, the idea of faith, and the idea of justified. And so I just want to walk through these quickly with you so that we uh, are up to speed and we understand this. Again, if you aren't able to jot some of this down, you don't have this down, a good place to write it is where these words are located in the text on those papers that we have for you to, to print out. But uh, if for some reason you feel like you're lagging a little bit behind in this, don't worry. Mitch will make sure that all the uh, slides and everything are put up for you to access going through the sermon. First, we deal with the idea of righteousness. Righteousness deals with the idea of being innocent or without fault. It is having no guilt, being guiltless. And, have, and the reason why this is is because it, we have, have sufficiently met what God has required. 
Something has happened to where God's requirements on us have been sufficiently met and we are now declared righteous. Now, it's important for us to recognize that this is imputed, meaning that it's credited to one's account. It's not imparted, meaning that righteousness was not transferred into our account. It's the fact that we have been imputed or credited with righteousness, and that righteousness that we've been accredited with is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. Now, one quick thing we need to understand about the nature of righteousness or or about righteousness is, number one, righteousness speaks of a standard. It's an expectation or a measurement that's put forward. In fact, uh, you'll notice if you look at some passages in the scriptures that righteousness is often connected with the idea of judgment. And I've got a couple of verses there for you to look at. But if you were to get out your concordance and you were to go through and look at the idea of righteous or righteousness, something like that, you would often find an idea of judgment or just would be a good word to put next to it that would be that would pair with it nicely. And the reason is, is because there's a standard that God has put into place, and it's a righteousness. The righteousness of God is the standard. Another thing is, is that righteousness is a nature. It is who God is, and he cannot be otherwise. He is always righteous at all times, and he can never not be righteous. And if he were to ever not be righteous, he would have to cease to be God. Uh, The nature of God is righteousness. It is part and parcel of him. And so not only does he set a standard of righteousness, but that standard that he sets is completely correspondent to who he is as God. The second word we want to look at is the idea of faith. And faith has been a largely um, fractured word in Christianity Uh, over the past couple of hundred years, but it's important to recognize that the Bible gives us a definition of faith, Hebrews 11.1, and it's a conviction that something is true. In fact, I will go ahead and make a statement like this. If you're reading through a systematic theology or somebody wants to talk in depth about the word faith and does not reference Hebrews 11.1 as a biblical given definition of the word faith, you really have to question where this person is coming from in order to communicate that truth to you if the Bible is already giving you a clear answer. It's important to recognize that faith is the means by which the righteousness of God is appropriated when one responds to the gospel. So there is no merit in faith. Faith is simply a response. And by responding, the righteousness of God is now appropriated. Appropriation is a big deal for us to understand. Let me give you a plain, frustrating example that makes me want to smack some people of what's come up recently. And that's the fact that all of our needs are already provided for. And I think we have to not underestimate this idea. Uh, Last night, my wife and I watched a show where they were talking about how people were starving, standing in food lines because of everything that has happened. And yet we're getting report on other news channels that we're pouring out gallons of milk and there are mounds of vegetables that are going to waste. This is this is stupid. Um, It's just flat out dumb. But notice the problem here is not that we don't have our needs to be met. The fact is everything for them have already been provided. The problem is appropriation. These things that are being wasted that would be perfectly used in a, in a tragic situation like this just need to be appropriated in the right direction. And we would be amazed at how little problems we would have because of something like that. Now, if that's my soapbox for the day, then praise God, it needs to be said. Uh, but there's enough foolishness going on for people to, to heap stupidity on top of it. Uh, There's just enough of all that. 
Back to faith. Faith is the means of appropriation of God's righteousness. That's how righteousness comes to us is through the channel of faith. The last review vocabulary word here is justified. And the idea of being justified or justification is the fact that we have been declared righteous, not that we are made righteous. Being declared righteous, it's an instantaneous event. It's not a progressive thing. It happens in a moment, and it happens at the moment of faith. God declares us righteous. It is God's public pronouncement that a favorable verdict has been rendered to the one who believes due to the sufficient nature of Christ's death and resurrection. So it is a public understanding of God's viewpoint of you now that you have responded to the gospel in faith, and Christ now covers you. You are you are justified in his sight. Now, this brings us to where we're going to pick up today, and that's in Romans 3.24. Uh, it's interesting because we've been, we, it's interesting how much time you have to do things that you needed to do. When we moved here almost three years ago, we still have things in boxes that we're trying to unpack, and we've been hanging up pictures lately. And across from my desk down in the basement, I have this really beautiful picture of Van Gogh's Starry Night, and it is an epic piece of art. And uh, I find myself looking at it a lot and thinking, wow, it's really incredible that somebody would sit down and paint something as beautiful as something like that. Um, I'm normally a Chagall person. I like cubism and things like that from the early 1900s. But there's something about what Van Gogh's done in that picture that's incredible. Uh, and it's a, it's a, it's nothing short of a masterpiece. And I know that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's all God-breathed. It's all unequal playing field, the verbal plenary inspiration of God. I understand all of that. But I would say that there is no verse that has impacted my life more than Romans 3.24, and that's why I want to slow down and spend so much time on it. Let's read it real quick. It says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Let me read you a, a little paraphrase. This is from Philip's New Testament. It was released in the 50s. This is a really good uh, capturing of the idea. Verse 24, he says, under this divine system, a man who has faith is now freely acquitted in the eyes of God by his generous dealing in the redemptive act of Jesus Christ. We cannot understand enough the words that are going on, these vocabulary words that are going on in verse 24. And the reason is, is because we see free words, which are gift and grace, and we see costly words, which is a word like redemption, or if you were to look forward in verse 25, which we'll deal with next week, the idea of propitiation. And what I want to deal with today is solely the free words that we're looking at. And the first one I want to look at is the word gift. We need a better understanding of what exactly a gift is. In the Greek, the word is doreon. And the idea is, is that it's being freely given as a gift or without payment. In fact, if you if you want I've said this to you before, but if you want to do something fun, pull up Microsoft Word sometime and type in the word free gift and watch how it marks you for a grammatical error. And the reason is is because a gift is free by its very definition. And so it sees that you are being redundant in what you are writing. Uh, that's very interesting to see that picks up on that. And the reason is, is because there's a lot of material out there today that is being released by Christian people uh, that can't understand that a gift is absolutely free. 
So the, the top lexicon, Greek lexicon that we deal with, is the idea of without payment, it's as a gift. If you look at Thayer's lexicon, it's the idea of without cost or as a free gift. Notice he has to be redundant there to communicate it. Without paying. It is something that obligates nothing of you whatsoever. In fact, if you were to look at this, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a Lutheran commentator, a Greek scholar, his name is Linsky, and he translated this and he said, verse 24, being declared righteous gratuitously by his grace. That's a good way to look at it. Some, some things for us to look at to help us understand the nature of this is if you would turn over to Acts chapter 8. Turn to the left to Acts chapter 8. I want to see something just real quick. If you haven't noticed, I'm cutting my sermons down to where they're no longer than 45 minutes. And the reason is, is because I don't know that we can digest anything longer than that. And so forgive me for previous longer sermons. Uh, but my goal is to pack a lot in this. And if you need to listen to it a second time, that's fine. But I don't want to do it at a point to where you're exhausted by the time we're finished. Acts chapter 8, look at verse 18. And this is dealing with the idea of Simon the sorcerer is, is the main focus in this idea or in this situation. And um, it's important for us to recognize uh, that the idea is that the fact that the spirit has been given. Now, Simon, previously being a sorcerer, he actually believes. You see that in chapter 8, verse 13. But picking up in verse 18, it says, So when Simon saw that the spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Now, Watch this, because the Spirit came upon people. Simon's initial reaction is to try to obtain this by a means of what he can give in order to get it. Now, verse 19, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, let's be honest. We don't know if his motivations behind this were for personal gain. That statement doesn't seem to, to lean us in that direction. Uh, it actually seems to, to point us in a direction that he was actually being a little bit more selfless about it, that he wanted to share this with everyone, that he had good motives behind it. But I think it's interesting in verse 20, Peter's response. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. Now remember, this is a believer. Simon is a believer. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed. But Peter says, may your silver perish with you because you thought... You could obtain the Doreon of God with money. That you thought that something that is freely given, something that is gratuitously bestowed on somebody, could be paid for or bought. The whole nature of a gift is that an exchange cannot take place. Meaning that it's not somebody gives you something and you give them something. It is not that. That's a transaction. That's not a gift. And we have to understand the difference if we are to think correctly about God's perspective and his graciousness towards us and the fact of it being a gift. One interesting way that this is also translated, if you would turn over to the Gospel of John chapter 15, because this is somewhat of an anomaly in the Scriptures of how this is translated, but it's perfectly within the parameters uh, of the understanding of this word, Doreon, is the idea of being without a cause. In John 15, verse 25, now Jesus is speaking about uh, the whole idea that people are going to persecute uh, 
the 11. He's talking to the 11 at this time. Um, that the Spirit's going to come, that the people who hate him hate the Father also, um, that he's done works amongst them, and now they are they are going to be held guilty because they've seen his works and have responded incorrectly to them. They didn't respond in faith. They responded with the plot to murder. And I want you to look at verse 25. He says, But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. And without a cause, that phrase there is the Greek word doreon. Now, it's important that we see this. And, and I could not sum this explanation up any better. I actually found it in a commentary by a guy named William Newell. If you're familiar with the song At Calvary, he wrote that song. He's got an excellent little commentary on Romans where he captures the idea of a gift and what grace is uh, probably better than most people that I've seen. Here's what he says. The Greek word doreon means for nothing, gratuitously, gift-wise, as a free gift. Paul, for example, uses the same word in reminding the Corinthians of his labors to make the gospel without charge. Freely, being doreon, you receive, freely give, said the Lord to the twelve. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely, doreon meaning for nothing in Revelation 21.6. And it occurs in almost the very last verse of the Bible. Let him take of the water of life freely. Doreon, Revelation 22.17. Perhaps the most striking use of this word is by our Lord. They hated me without cause. Doreon, in John 15.25. The cause of the hatred was in them, not in Christ. I want you to get this. Turning this about, the cause of our justification is in God, not in us. We are justified, doreon. We are justified freely, gratis, gratuitously, gift-wise, without a cause in us. This great fact should deliver just now some reader who has been looking within to his spiritual state or feelings or prayers as a ground of peace. What does this idea of being justified as a gift, Doreon, mean for us? It means the cause for being justified was not found in us whatsoever. There is nothing within an individual, a human being, that merits the justification of God. It is free. It is given freely. There is no payment we could ever make, and that payment includes any attempt that we would try to do to clean up our life before, to clean up our life in exchange for the gift, or to clean up our life after the gift. It has nothing to do with us. The gift is freely given because the freeness of giving is found in God himself. That is where the cause lies. So when we think about the idea of gift, if we were doing some morning devotional reading or something like that, we may pass right over verse 24 and this glorious word gift and not even give a second thought as to the depth of understanding that it might entail. And so I encourage you, do a study of your, for yourself and look at it every time in the New Testament and see how it is constantly listed without having uh, any kind of merit supposed upon it. This brings us to our second free word that we're dealing with, and that is the idea of grace. We cannot say enough about grace. I will go ahead and tell you now, 
that you are going to have a link that is listed on the homepage uh, that talks about what is free grace theology. Grace Bible Church is unashamedly standing next to the free grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation and sanctification and glorification, and we make no apologies about that whatsoever. Uh, and I am not concerned about any objections that anybody would want to raise to our holding of grace. You cannot understand grace enough. It is a theme that you never move on from. It is a theme that you will never master because it is so much greater and infinite and bigger than we will ever be able to comprehend either in heart or in mind. And it is important for us to grasp, even begin to look at the diamond that is grace. To break it down for you, grace. In the Greek, it is the word haris, as, it is, as you would see it. The, the C there is not really pronounced. Oftentimes we say charis. Uh, you're either from Kentucky or have some weird accent like me. But it's actually pronounced in Greek, haris is the idea. And the idea is goodwill towards somebody or loving kindness. If you look at the idea of loving kindness, you would sometimes associate that with God's loyal or committed love towards people. Uh, most oftentimes, it's listed as favor. In fact, if you look in the Old Testament, grace is understood as favor almost exclusively in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we deal with the idea of grace. It says here, kindness which bestows upon one what he has not deserved. That's Thayer's understanding. Chafer writes this, grace means pure, unrecompensed kindness. And favor. If I could promote one book that you would need to understand grace or somebody that had a grasp on grace, it would be Lewis Sperry Chafer's book, Grace. It's about 100 years old now. It is a masterful book. If you were to buy that book just for the first chapter, the first chapter uh, will cause you to study for a long time on exactly the extents, the depths of grace. And we're going to attempt to scratch that surface today. One amazing thing about grace is that it's mentioned 28 times in the book of Romans, and that's more than any other New Testament book that we have available. Paul emphasizes the doctrine of grace in Romans. Chafer also wrote, in the Bible, the word often represents that which is limitless, since it represents realities which are infinite and eternal. And it is nothing less than the unlimited love of God expressing itself in measureless grace. It is the idea of undeserving entities receiving everything regardless of what they should have. Grace rules out all human merit. Any intermixture of human merit violates grace. To understand grace is something other than absolutely free and unconditional is to not have a correct view of of what we would call biblical grace. In fact, if you want to jot this down uh, in a side margin somewhere, one great explanation of grace is found in Romans eleven six. It's not up on the screen. You don't have to worry about it, but let me just read it to you. But if it, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. In other words, any time in a gracious situation you try to bring works into the picture, regardless if it is before, during, or after, it does not matter, you have immediately dismantled the very definition of what grace was seeking to accomplish. 
Grace is something that is perfectly coupled with the idea of gift because it all encompasses something that is freely given. And so if you notice in verse 24 of of Romans 3, when it says being justified as a gift, something freely given without payment by his grace, the idea that it's been lavishly or limitlessly heaped upon us, the fact that it is freely by his grace, some translations may say, what you're finding is, is the unmerited favor of God is being given to us without any concern or consideration of what we are or what we might do or how we may respond in it. That grace is freely available. This is where you find the redundancy of the notion of free grace theology. It's redundant, but it's also necessary if for no other reason because Romans 3.24 is so misunderstood in the words gift and grace. It's important to understand that we have distortions of grace. And usually sometimes when we look at the negatives, the distortions of grace, we can understand better exactly what grace is, or at least it removes some of the clutter in our minds to grasp grace. For instance, if there's any kind of stipulation that's put on grace before someone comes to faith in Christ, before their conversion, it usually looks like this, that faith is then redefined as full submission to Christ. And what that does is it deems that obedience is an inseparable part of believing in Christ. Uh, should a good should a believer have good works? Absolutely. Nobody would disagree with that. Are those good works contingent in any way upon their justification? Absolutely not. And anyone who tries to marry good works to justification has robbed the gift and has robbed the grace and has sought to write a check with nice deeds, with admirable acts or morals to try to pay for what God has freely given. So here's one definition by somebody who would want to distort the idea of the freeness of grace. This is Kenneth Gentry in his book, Lord of the Saved. Here's what he writes about distorting grace beforehand, and he's, he's an advocate of it. He said it includes the need, he's talking about faith, it includes the need to acknowledge Christ as the Lord and Master of one's life and the act of truly receiving Him as Savior. These are not two different sequential acts or successive steps, but rather one act of pure trusting Faith, And I think it's interesting that he had to put trusting faith because that also is a redundancy there. But what he's saying is, is that your belief needs to truly be genuine. I would say that uh, the idea of needing to qualify faith beyond simply a conviction of what is true is actually to distort and to rob grace of its freeness and its beauty and its meritless, lavish uh, abundance upon someone. So... That creates a concern, obviously. Uh, a response to that, and then real quick, to, to load this, uh, to load grace with stipulations in order for someone to be converted is what is commonly understood as lordship salvation. Since lordship salvation requires a full commitment and consecration to God, the believer has nowhere to grow. This is Charlie Bing writing about this situation. 
By their understanding, the believer already loves God with all of his heart, is already abiding faithfully in the scriptures, is already living a life of self-denial, and is already willing to suffer for Christ. And these are all things that are put forward as a stipulation in order for God to accept you. If you're not willing to do these things, you cannot be saved. Now, I ask you to ponder quickly and ask yourself, are you loving God with all your heart at this moment? Are you abiding faithfully in the scriptures? Are you living a life of complete self-denial? And are you already now willing to suffer with Christ? I think if you had a moment to roll that over in your mind, you would conclude that you are not. And according to this position that has robbed grace of its power in people's lives, you are on your way to hell. Those are serious ramifications But this is also not requirements that I came up with. These are ones that I find in a lot of reading and what's being commonly promoted of what it is to come to faith in Christ today. And it is a distortion of the gospel. Now, another problem is, is that after somebody comes to faith in Christ, they can destroy or dismantle grace, God's lavish kindness towards us in an afterblow, if we want to say it that way. And putting stipulations after conversion has taken place. I ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts 15 because this is an excellent situation that actually deals directly with this problem. And since Christianity was largely coming out of Judaism in the first century, there's a lot of questions that came up at the beginning that had to be sorted through. And one of them is the idea of what are the requirements of someone in order to be saved? Are there requirements that need to be placed upon someone? If you're familiar with Acts chapter 15 at all, you know this and you probably have this as a heading above uh, chapter 15, which would say the council at Jerusalem or the Jerusalem council. And it's a really big deal because it's the first time they ever dealt with the issue of what role does works play in relation to someone being justified. And the reason Why they had this come up is because Peter, in Acts chapter 10, was called to preach to the house of Cornelius. And if you're familiar with this, Cornelius was a Gentile, and he's the first Gentile to come to faith in Christ, he and his household. And this freaked Peter out. He didn't know how to think about it at first. This is why the Lord prepped him with the sheet that came down from heaven. Let nothing that God has made be considered unclean. And this really taught a lesson to Peter about the fact that it wasn't just Jews who could come to faith in Christ. It was also the Gentiles. This broke down all racial barriers. If you want to know the theological significance that takes place there, you'll read over uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to the end of the chapter there, and it really deals with the work of the cross in destroying racism between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so now Paul, being on his ministry journey, is also the, the, the apostle to the Gentiles. He's been detailing out how Gentiles have come to faith in Christ. And I want to pick up in Acts 15, verse 5. In the midst of this situation, they're all meeting in Jerusalem. They're having a council. Uh, Peter, James, John, all those guys are all there. Paul is there. Uh, Barnabas is there with them. They're all having discussion. Look at verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, now we know those guys, and we usually think, oh, those are the bad guys, evil guys, horns coming out of their head or whatever, don't necessarily go there because notice what it says. The sect of the Pharisees who had believed. 
Now, real quick, Luke does not play with words when he talks about the idea of believed. When he says that they have believed, it's because he is putting forth an understanding or an idea that they are believers in Christ. So you have Pharisees who are regenerate or born again Pharisees. And he says here, the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, this is commonly what is known as backloading the gospel. If putting stipulations on somebody besides faith alone and Jesus Christ alone up front is front-loading the gospel, then this is someone having believed must now meet these requirements in order to truly be saved or to stay saved. If you're going to lean more towards a Wesleyan uh, Methodist, Assemblies of God, charismatic, some type of idea in order to stay saved. Uh, all of this is very dangerous. And I don't know of anybody today that is advocating circumcision or directing people to observe the law of Moses. That is actually is going on some in some reform circles in order to grow in their faith or to authenticate their salvation or that type of thing. But we do have such trappings as, well, they need to walk an aisle. Well, they need to pray a prayer. Well, I need to see evidence in their life. And we heap a lot of things on top of grace that completely rob grace of the freeness and the power that God meant for it to have in being his loving kindness or his favor towards people. There are no stipulations involved in grace and we've got to get that through our minds verse 6 says the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter and after there had been much debate so everybody's got a lot of issues to, to, to come up with and it's great because peter completely redeems himself for messing everything up in the garden when they betrayed jesus he says here peter stood up and said to them brethren you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, a couple of things I want to point out to you. Number one, what does Peter mean by by my mouth that the Gentiles would hear? If you remember, the Lord said that he was going to give to Peter the keys of the kingdom. And it's the idea that he was going to unlock that door for the Jews, which he did in Acts 2, and also for the Gentiles, which he did in Acts 10. Now, is Paul called to be a minister of the Gentiles? Yes, he is, absolutely. But he also had to spend about 14 years off the scene in order for the Holy Spirit to retrain his mind according to the Scriptures and to get him rid of law and to get him into an appreciation of grace and humble him in order to make him fit and ready for ministry of what he would suffer for Jesus' name's sake. So he's not lying here when he says this. The second thing I want to bring to your attention is notice that he gives us the order of salvation in verse 7, that the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. You hear first, and then you respond in belief. That is the order of salvation. Look at verse 8, and God, who knows the heart, testified to them. And how did he do that? Giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So in other words, the way that the Holy Spirit was given to Gentiles was no different than the way that it was given to the Jews. It was one and the same, and it testified to something. And it says here, verse 9, and he made no distinction, notice that, no distinction between Jew and Gentile, between us and them, cleansing their hearts, and notice the channel of appropriation, by faith. Verse 10, now this is important, watch this. 
Now, therefore, and notice Peter, Peter already has the answer to this whole situation while everybody else was debating. Know, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, if they are saved by the free grace of God and they've responded to the gospel message in faith, and the Holy Spirit has testified that they are equally accepted as the Jews had been accepted into the body of Christ, the church, then why would we want to heap something else on them that is going to rob them from growing in the grace of God? It makes no sense. Verse 11, But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Watch this. In the same way as they also are. How did salvation come? It came by grace. Believing Pharisees were asserting that believers must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. This was a requirement that was strapped onto the grace of God. Peter says, no. Everything that God has done has testified that grace is to remain free. And when you put a stipulation on top of grace, you rob it of its effectiveness. Now, why do people want to do this? Well, here's the reason why. Grace is too risky. You can't control it. And people who are higher ups in church love to control things. They love to qualify whether people are going to heaven or not. They love to judge other people and determine whether or not they're going to heaven or hell. They want to let people know whether they're saved or not, whether they're okay or not. You have people that will ask questions. Well, pastor, do you think this is right or do you think this is wrong? We can sit here and say whether it's sin or not, but those types of things are never a bearing on someone's salvation. Let me test your grace meter to understand. Can someone who's a practicing homosexual be a Christian? Immediately there's something evokes in your heart. Say, well, absolutely not. Don't you know that they're sinful? Don't you know that they're saying wrong? I would tell you that you don't understand grace that you don't have a clue what grace as distributed freely from God is about. Well, are you saying that the church should be okay with sin? No, the church is not to be okay with sin. God is not okay with sin. And God gave the life of his son to pay for those types of sins. Sin is never okay. But grace is not the excusing of sin. Grace is understanding that the payment of sin was rendered by another people and being freely distributed to you. Maybe that person who's a practicing homosexual has not been encouraged by the church. Maybe they're hard-hearted and not reading the word. Maybe they've neglected prayer. But I tell you what, we've done a severe amount of damage in our Christian churches nowadays because we're so scared to death of grace because we can't control people and we can't qualify people and we can't judge people. First Corinthians chapter four, Paul says, I don't even judge myself. Judgment is never put in the hands of human people regarding salvation, heaven and hell issues. It is not our place to judge. However, it is our place to be gracious. And one reason why we have such an uprise of lordship salvation and some damnable works that have been put into uh, book form that have led entire churches astray in this type of situation is all because we want to qualify who's chosen and who's not, who's elect and who's not, who's going and who ain't, who's in hell and who's not. And as long as we're more righteous and more obedient than the next guy, we've qualified ourselves as okay. 
The next person is not the standard. Jesus Christ is the standard. None of us ever measure up at any time. And that right there is the motive that should provoke in us a desire, a desperate need, recognizing our poverty-stricken condition of why we need grace. We need God's pure, unrecompensed kindness and favor. And the great thing is, is that he has already fully provided it for us. We just deny it when we allow works into the picture. I want to read to you a long quote from this book, Grace. It is worth your time to get. Get on eBay. Get it. If you have to lie, saw it when it gets to your door, that's fine, but read it. Grace speaks of a gift, not of barter or trade, however unequal. It is pure kindness, not the fulfilling of an obligation. An act in order to be gracious must stand disassociated and alone. Divine salvation is, therefore, the kindness of God towards sinners. It is not less than it would be had they sinned less. It is not more than it would be had they sinned more. It is wholly unrelated to every question of human merit. Grace is neither treating a person as he deserves nor treating a person better than he deserves. It is treating a person graciously without the slightest reference to his deserts. Grace is infinite love expressing itself in infinite goodness. If you want to know if you're somebody who is grace-oriented, ask yourself the question, what talked you out of sharing the gospel with somebody the last time the Holy Spirit prompted you to go and strike up a conversation or to extend a hand to someone? Did you look at their appearance and disqualify them because of that? That's how you know whether or not you've put boundaries on grace. Was there something that told you, well, I may be looked at in a bad way if I do that? The exalting of self always destroys grace. When we become more concerned about ourselves than what God has done for people, and the fact that we are vessels of His grace, we've robbed grace. Now, I would ask that you look at the article that you have a link to. And in fact, look at everything on Charlie Bing's website. It's fantastic. He's an incredible scholar. He's devoted his life to keeping grace free and clear and simple for people. But I want to share with you 52 things. You said this was going to be a short sermon. It is. I'm going to go through them quickly. But you've got them on the screen. I want to go through 52 things. These are gracious blessings received at the moment of faith in Christ. This is the magnitude of grace that has been poured out. And I'm sure that this is not exhaustive. There's much, much more. If you ever want to note how much grace God has had on your life, simply take the New Testament and read through and ask the question, what has God done for me in Christ? What has he made available for me in Christ? Because it's understanding who we are in Christ that keeps us from over-obsessive self-introspection. We need to be focusing more on what Christ has done. And so I've modified this a little bit. This is out of another book that Chafer wrote called Salvation. But let's go through these quickly. Number one, we've been reconciled to God, meaning we should have always been there. Jesus brought us back to where we should have been. Number two and three, redeemed and related to God through propitiation. That's going to be the subject of next week. 
Number four, all of our sins, all sins, past, present, future, doesn't matter, have been covered by the atoning blood of Christ. Number five, we've been united with Christ for judgment of the old man. Our old man has died, and we can now walk a new walk in the newness of life. Number six, we've been completely freed from the law. What role does the law play in the Christian life? None. You are not obligated whatsoever. It points out sin, and it condemns, and that's it. And walking in grace has nothing to do with the law. Number seven, we're children of God. That's an act of his grace. Number eight, we're regenerated or we're born again. We've been made alive would be a way to look at it. Number nine, we've been adopted. We've been placed as adult sons, and we have a future adoption that's already been secured. Number 10, we've been declared righteous, or we're justified in his sight. Number 11, forgiven all trespasses. 12, brought near by the blood of Christ into a relationship with God through Jesus. Number 13, we've been delivered from the powers of darkness. Number 14, we've been translated into the kingdom of his beloved son. Number 15, secured on the firm foundation of Christ Jesus our Lord. Number 16, we've been circumcised in Christ. And everybody's like, whoa, that's weird. What in the world does that mean? Look at Colossians 2.11. It's the fact that the, the body of flesh has been removed from us. And we are now people that can live and walk in the spirit where we never could before him. Number 17, we're partakers of the holy and royal priesthood. Every believer is a priest. Number 18, we're a chosen generation and a peculiar people. Number 19, we have access to God. Number 20, we are within the much more care of God, that God wants to do much more with us besides just saving us. He wants greatness for us because he wants us to be great, understanding objects of his grace. Number 21, we're objects of his love. Number 22, we're objects of his grace. We're objects of his power. We're objects of his faithfulness. We're objects of his peace. We're objects of his consolation. We're objects of his intercession. We are God's inheritance. Stop and think about that for a second. When it's all all over and done with, God gets us. Now that sounds like that he just got done shopping at the dollar store in a situation. But God wants us and God deems us because of all that we are in Christ to be an inheritance that he looks forward to. Not only that, but he's already reserved an inheritance in heaven for us. Number 30, we are partners with Christ in life. Number 31, we're raised and seated with Christ. Number 32, we are partners with Christ in service. Number 33, we are partners with Christ in suffering. Number 34, we've been betrothed to Christ. We are heavenly citizens. We are of the family and the household of God. 37, we are light in the Lord. We are united to the Father, Son, and Spirit. 39, we are members of Christ's body. 40, we are a branch in the vine. We are a stone in the building. We are sheep in his flock. We are a priest of the kingdom of priests. We are saints. Number 45, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Number 46, we are born of the Spirit. Number 47, we are baptized with the Spirit. Number 48, we are sealed by the Spirit. Number 49, we are guaranteed glorification. Number 50, we are complete in him. Number 51, we possess every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And number 52, we are one new man in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are 
all of these things. We are all of these things. These are all guaranteed things. Whether you feel them or not, whether you believe them or not, it does not matter. They are all absolutely true, and they are true based on nothing we have done, are doing, or will ever do because we will never deserve any of this. All of this is the favor, the unmerited kindness, the pure unrecompensed grace of God. It is all that he has done for us that we could never do of ourselves. It is grace, grace, grace. If your mind wants to put some sort of barrier on this grace now, remove it. Take it away. Don't let the enemy rob you of God's incredible free gift. It is grace. Let's pray. Father, how amazing it is that we are blessed in Christ and these blessings are already put forward for us. They are yes, they are amen. They are secure. They are certain in Christ Jesus our Lord. The sheer fact that you've even made salvation possible is an incredible act of grace. Father, help us to have grace eyes, to have grace words, to have grace hearts, to understand that grace is everything that you are. You are gracious. Father, give us wisdom to understand. Help us to understand that your grace speaks daily, daily to us. And because of all that you've done, we have the ability to live graciously. If we considered the merits of people around us or even ourselves, no one deserves anything at all. At all. You are gracious. Father, help us to think like you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.